Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first Upfront episode of 2023. I'm so glad you're here with us. Now, for this episode, we are going back and are revisiting the guests from last year and highlighting some of our favorite parts of their interviews. On this episode, we'll hear from Scott Haney from WFSB, Jeff Brooks from Give Coffee, Alexander Williams from Blue Earth Compost, Matthew Berry from NBC Sports, Chef Tyler Anderson, Jill Mayer from Bead Industries, Claire Crisquolo from Claire's Cornucopia, and our very own Michael Field from Mason. Quite the roster. Now, if you're a listener of the show, then you know that each episode of Upfront goes deep. We want to learn more about the habits, choices, and lifestyle of our guests that have helped shape them into the person they are and how it's helped them get to where they are today in their careers. We talk about things like where did they grow up? What did they want to be later in life? What were some of the early life lessons? And so much more. And then we shift into practical advice that hopefully we can all learn from. We talk about what did they fail at and what was the lessons learned? What is their leadership style like? And so on. So let's get right into it. First up is Scott Haney, one of Connecticut's most recognizable news personalities. He's a meteorologist at WFSB Channel 3, as well as the host of Great Day Connecticut. But long before he landed on Channel 3, Scott grew up in Long Island and had a burning desire to be on television. He worked in retail, later landed a soap opera role, and finally went to school to be a meteorologist. He hopped around from station to station, and nothing really fulfilled him until he landed at Channel 3. What you're about to hear is one of my favorite parts of our conversation, where Scott shares his story of arriving at Channel 3. It's a great story of perseverance and asking someone to take a chance on you. Tell us about arriving at FSB. What year was it? I get an agent, I get a talent agent while I'm working at News 12. Yep. And they're like, you're quirky, you're funny. You know, you're not going to work any everywhere. You're not going to work in the middle of the country. I'm like, good, because I already tried that. They're like, you're either going to end up on the West Coast or the East Coast. So he's like, and it's going to take us a while to find you a job because it's going to be the right fit. Yep. So I said, okay. So I waited um, probably about a year. And then they called uh, Kenny Slotnick was my agent and he called and he said, we got a part-time weather job open. You don't have to be a meteorologist, um, but they want you to continue with your schooling because I had started schooling. The, uh, you don't have to be a meteorologist, but um, it's weekends and Mondays, 10 hours on Mondays working behind the scenes with the other meteorologists. And I was like, all right. I said, I'll go for the interview. Steve Sabata was the news director. He calls me in after I, I think I waited like an hour and a half in the waiting room to get into this interview. And I was like, I think you forgot about me. I really honestly do. I think you forgot about me. 
And then he calls me in. He's like, you're not a meteorologist. He's like, I really don't want to hire you. He's like, I'm just seeing you because I'm good friends with Kenny Slotnick, your agent. And I said, oh. So I, I didn't think I was going to get the job. And I said, okay. I said, well, I've done a little research. I said, your ratings are in the toilet. I said, oh, hang on a minute. You have no ratings uh, in the morning. In the evening, we were always the legacy station. Yeah. But in the morning, we, oh, we, we struggled. And I said, give me a year. I said, if I don't turn the mornings around, at least on the weekends, I said, then we'll part ways. Mm. So he said, he said you, he's like, you got yourself a deal. He's like, you got one year. And then he yelled at me. Oh, my God. He's still one of my – he's still a very close friend. Uh, not a he, – he's still in my life, I should say. We're, we're, we're good friends. And um, But he yelled at me. Uh, every time I did something on the air, he would yell at me. Yeah. And then I was just like – and then Paul, my partner, was just like, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And Denise Desenzo, who was at the – you know, un unfortunately, she's passed. But yeah. uh, she gave me some advice. She's like – just remember, she's like, the cream always rises to the top. She's like, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And that year, the numbers went up. Mm. And they added an extra hour to the weekend shows. And then they added another hour. And then they added another hour to Sunday show. And then they added another hour. So the one-hour show on Saturday and Sunday became two hours, which then became three hours. Wow. Because they were selling, they were finally able to sell the show because they yep. had some viewers. Yep. And then after that year, they said, we want you to become full-time. And I said, there's no weather openings full-time. And they said, you're going to do soft news. You'll do feature stories Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You'll, um, and you're going to leave enough for us to run on Thursdays and Fridays when you're not here so that you still have a presence Thursday for Thursday and Friday. So I did. I did, you know, the blueberry, picking it, baking it and turning it into a scrub. I mean, I did three stories, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on the blueberry. The next week was <laughs> animal shelters. The next week, you know, it was always something. Yeah. Yeah. And um, then in uh, 2003, they fired the chief, Miles Musio. They promoted Bruce who was the morning weather guy, and they gave me the morning weather spot. That was in 2003. So that was almost 20 years ago now. And I've been on the morning, ever, I've been on that morning show ever since. Joe Mayer is the CEO of Bead Industries, a Connecticut manufacturing company that is best known for making the beaded light pull chain. You know, the chain you pull to turn the light on and off as well as an electronics and plumbing product company. She's a beacon of light in the world of leadership and has transformed the way the family business runs. We talked about growing up in Alaska, coming to the East Coast, and working lots of jobs at Bede before becoming CEO. I enjoy talking with leaders and learning more about their morning routines and habits and what their leadership style is like. So let's hear what Jill has to say. What would you say that your leadership style is like? I would say I'm, I'm collaborative. Um, I'm passionate. Um, 
you know, we get in a, our, our team gets in a room and we're, we're batting around different ideas or we're talking about things and get excited. And I, I, um, we're all, we're all listening and engaging and everyone has great feedback and everyone has a different perspective. And I love to hear it all. So there's usually not just one person talking and then everyone agrees. I think Mm -hmm. that, um, and then the other thing I would say is I'm very honest and direct and, um, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman that, that I've got some of that empathy built in. Um, you know, I try to be as forthcoming as possible without being mean. Right. But I think everyone, everyone appreciates, I know I appreciate honesty and I think if it's done in a way that's, um, compassionate, but still honest, I think people, people would rather hear that than not. Yeah, for sure. It's like, at least if if you're honest and you tried, you know, great. But, um, okay. So, you know, in that role, what, what would you say is your greatest challenge and how do you overcome it? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about ourselves being our own worst enemy, just kind of getting out of my own way. But then I would say, um, you know, surrounding yourself with positive, intelligent people and and positive people, meaning they're looking for solution. They're they're They come with solutions, not problems. Mm. Right. Um, and, and asking the questions, asking the tough questions. Um, so I think a challenge would be, you know, facing tough answers to tough questions. Right. Or, um, Facing, facing the, especially in manufacturing and in family businesses, things are done the same way. They're done, they're always done this way and kind of changing, changing how things are done because mm-hmm. you're asking different questions. Can, you can sometimes hit a bit of a wall with that. But in one of my favorite quotes too, is if you always, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. And so <laughs> you got to do things differently and you got to ask the questions and you got to push through that resistance a bit yeah. um, as, as slowly as you need to. But um, I think that can be a challenge, but um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a must do. I read somewhere that if the, the, your phone is the first thing you do before bed and the first thing you do when you wake up you're not doing it right so um i do not touch my phone at night um at least least an hour before bed i'm unless i'm setting my alarm but i don't really think that counts you know your phone alarm (laughs) and then um in the morning i I do not touch my phone um until a little later but um yeah no i i've got you know i've got my sort of uh, during my workout routine it's a great way to kind of level set clear your head honestly they say that when you're showering or when you're exercising or something where your brain is is not running um, hard, that's when you get your great ideas. So I am I'm the classic person where I'm on the treadmill and I think <laughs> of something awesome and I I start texting it to myself or, yeah. or voice voice commanding. Um, so um, I think doing those kinds of things and I, and I do think getting some of that energy out and like not that it's negative energy but just some Sometimes just draining your body of that sort of physical energy will will help kind of focus your mind. I, I've never had a regular exercise routine except for the last couple of years. You know, yeah. once once my kids were a little older, I was like, all right, I have no excuse now. I've got to do this, and it's been the best thing for me because 
it really does set your whole day ahead of you. If you can accomplish that, the rest of the day is going to be cake. Matthew Berry needs little introduction, but just in case, he's the force behind fantasy sports. He took what was once seen as a nerdy thing and made it into something cool. So cool, in fact, that he became the face of fantasy sports on ESPN for quite some time. Prior to fantasy sports, Matt was a Hollywood writer and wrote for Married with Children, among other shows. He's also a New York Times bestselling author and is now at NBC Sports talking, you guessed it, fantasy sports. The one thing I learned from our conversation is Matt is the kind of guy who doesn't give up and chases after his dreams until they become real. When he was turned down time and time again for his book, he kept going. Everyone told him it wasn't worth pursuing. And guess what? The book came out and became a bestseller. He was also told to stick to writing about sports in his column, but he felt that mixing in personal stories would resonate with people, and he was right. So when I asked him what he learned about failure, here's what he had to say. Okay, so on the flip side of all of that, you know, these these incredible successes, what is your favorite failure? And it's just, you know, strange question. So what I mean by that is, I mean, something you, you thought you were so sure of, but it didn't quite work out. It failed. And that's okay. But what was the lesson learned from that? Oh, that's a great question. And there are plenty of failures. I'm just trying to think of like what, uh, I mean, like, you know, it depends. They're small and large, right? I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, again, we went to like, 15 publishers with fantasy life and we got rejected by over half of them, you know? Um, so that's one, but I kept persevering. Right. I mean, uh, probably, uh, you know, one of my biggest things is to, you know, sort of, I guess, stick to my guns. I mean, you know, another failure, I mean, here's one, I guess, um, is my column, you know, I write a column called love hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, very popular. And, uh, you know, the preseason version of love, hate this past year on ESPN.com did about 1.5 million views, about 1.5 million people read it this past year. And it's always like the highest rated column on ESPN.com. I'm very blessed. And, uh, my columns are always for those that have never read me, my column, when I started out in fantasy football analysis, it was very dry, a lot of stats, a lot of analytics, just why you should like this player or not like that player. And I, I felt that it was sort of boring and I wanted to bring some personality to it. And so, you know, I always say this is that I, I feel like the, you know, listen, I'm pretty good with stats, but I'm not, I'm not Nate Silver. Right. And I'm pretty good with X's and O's, but I'm not like an X, you know, I'm not Tony Romo. Right. They can, you know, predict a play before it happens. And, uh, you know, I have, I have a bunch of contacts inside the NFL, but I'm not Adam Schefter. I don't have every single coach and general manager in my cell phone. But what I am really good at, better than anyone in the world, Derek, because I was trying to figure out what's my advantage. What I am better at than anyone in the world is talking about myself. And so I decided to lean into that. And so every column I've written, and I've written it 
once a week for over 20 years. Uh, every column I write is always starts out with a story about me, mm. about my life, about my kids, about my wife, about something that happened in my past, about, you know, something that uh, about a league that I found about, you know, something that ha- intersects somehow in fantasy football or a lesson. And, you know, they're long. It's 1,500, 2,000 words, something like that, maybe sometimes 2,500. And when I started, people were like, no one cares about you. It's myopic. It's, it's you know, navel-gazing. It's like, who cares? Just get to the advice. Tell us who to start. Tell us who to sit. No one cares. And I started with a, this website called Roto World. Yeah. Roto World at the time had a distribution deal with FoxSports.com. That was a big deal. So Roto World was just starting out. Roto World is now owned by NBC. But at the time, Roto World was an independent site. It's where I started. And they, they had this distribution deal where all the Roto World columns would run on FoxSports.com. And so that was a big deal. And the only column, so there was probably like 15 columns that Roto World would send over every week. And the only column that FoxSports.com would refuse to run was mine. Because they said um, they, uh, they said it was, you know, it was, it was, it, no one cared about me. That it was just too inside and blah, 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 blah. And no one, you know, just get to the advice. Mm. But I will say credit to my, my bosses at Roto World who said, no, stick with it. And, uh, and so I kept doing that. And it easily would have been easily, I was just starting out of my career, and it would have been easy for me to doubt myself or try to like, hey, you know what, maybe I should try to just focus more on the starts and sits and try to go more into the analytics or more into the X's and O's and that kind of stuff. And I just sort of stuck to my guns. I said, this is, I think this is funny. I think this is interesting. I think people will get to know me and care about me. And so again, it's taken 20, you know, it's taken a long time, but like people feel like they know me. And so I think it's one of the reasons why a book with literally no fantasy football advice debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list, a book that was entirely about me debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list, and why 1.5 million people read my preseason column uh, this past year, Derek, which was 3,000 words before I ever got to a player. Wow. It was all about my late, great Aunt Cookie. And what she meant to me, she'd just passed away. And um, so I wrote about her and what she meant to me and the life lessons she imparted on me. And, uh, and so, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, lesson, I guess, from failure, if you will, is that like, I got rejected early in my career by foxsports.com and I just sort of stuck to my guns. And ultimately that has been my greatest success because the column has done well for me. As I just mentioned, it was the catalyst for the you know, professional moment that I'm most proud of. And I have to tell you that when people recognize me in the streets and they come up and they want a picture, they want to autograph, whatever it is, they never say to me, they never say to me like, hey, thanks for Jalen Hurts last year. What a great call. Thanks for ranking Austin Eckler so high last year. He won me my league. They never say stuff like that. They always say, I love the column about your daughter breaking her arms, or I love the column about meeting your wife, or the bullying column, or your column about the heart attack or the column about your father-in-law. It's always, it's always a personal story of mine that touched them in some way. And it's always different. It's never, you know, there's definitely ones that come up more often than not, yep. but it's always, you know, there's every single story I get responses from that this meant something to me in a big way. And here's why. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that's, I believe, cause my advice is good. I think, I think my advice is very good. 
but there's a lot of people that give good advice. Yeah. I think what has separated me from a lot of other people is uh, I think people feel like they know me. Chef Tyler Anderson is the creative genius behind restaurants like Millwrights, Terreno, and other food concepts here in Connecticut. He's also appeared on the Food Network shows Top Chef, Chopped, and Beat Bobby Flay. We talked about his culinary career path, hustling snow cones on his street as a kid, and how his entrepreneurial spirit still drives him today. Running a kitchen is hard work. It takes a team and a fearless leader. Two of my favorite parts of my conversation with Tyler were about what food has taught him in life and what his leadership style in the kitchen is like. What does food mean to you, right? Or what has it taught you in life? Well, I'm currently weighing in at about 270, so it has. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favorite things. I mean, I love it. Just I love being at a table with people I care about or want to be there with. I feel like uh, it's a great equalizer. Like sharing dinner with someone is a great equalizer. There's no better way for me. There's no better way to to learn something about someone than to have dinner with them. Um, it's my favorite thing to do. It's my hobby. I've eaten. I eat at so many restaurants, um, and even at home. You know, like it's it's. I don't know. I feel like there's something special about breaking bread with somebody that you can't even quantify. Um, And you're also trusting someone else to put something into your body, like to take something inside your body. And that, that is a, you know, that trust is a big deal. We talked to a lot of CEOs and corporate people on the show as well, but and creative people like yourself. So I'm curious what your leadership style is like. Right. So, so you know, mine has to be a blend of like, you know, there's there's a creative. I, I guess there are a lot of like leaders who have to have a blend of creativity and leadership skills. So it's about trying to get people to buy into a vision um, and and doing it in a non-manipulative way where you know, restaurant people are very cut and dry. There's a lot, like, they've seen a lot of BS. And so you're not going to, like, you're not going to BS them into anything. So they have to really believe in you in order to come along for the ride. And I think that's a lot of it. A lot of it, too, is a huge part of what I do is find people who are good at what they do and just let them do it, you know? Uh, because there's, if, if you're if you're micromanaging in this business, then you're going to, uh, probably not end up on the happy side of 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 your life um, because there's so much that can go wrong, right? So if I'm sitting in the kitchen looking at every like chive to make sure like every single chive is cut the right way, I'm probably not seeing my children or my wife, and you know I'm probably not the happiest person in the world. But so the key is to find people to um, buy into the vision and find people who are good at what they do and let them do what they do. When you work with someone, they become your friend, and that's the case here. Michael Field is not only a friend of mine, but he's our VP and Executive Creative Director here at Mason. 
I work with Michael every day and love his creative drive and spirit. He pushes all of us to do better and to take bigger chances for our clients. His enthusiasm and passion for the job is infectious. We talked a lot about his background, his career throughout advertising, and his journey to becoming creative director. But what I really enjoyed about our conversation was that conversation about creativity and the creative process. Take me through the creative process. Like, do you have a particular approach that you take to every challenge a client brings to you? Tell me more, like, uh, about that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the approach is similar in most places where I've been, you know. Uh, you know, it's a, a, a understanding, you know, the client's business as deeply as we can is where we have to start, you know, and usually that starts prior to the pitch. But actual, if you mean the process of getting at the work, you know, it really so much is dependent on the brief and it's so valuable to have one well-written, you know, you have to have the background and the insight, you know, that's going to allow us to differentiate the brand, you know, where, where is the information and the data that can allow us to identify this emotional truth that's going to really help us to tap into that emotional truth so we can differentiate the brand on behalf of our clients, you know? And I think without the great brief, it's impossible to do great work. And I think it's also that that process of the brief is important so we can all have a checkpoint to look back to, whether it's internally or when we go through the work with the client, because we all want to be on the same page and we all have the same goals. We just sometimes have different ideas of how to get there. And the process for me begins with the brief. Um, If I'm partnering with somebody, it's obviously collaboration where we concept together and it's also for me research always trying to dive in and to find nuggets that i can leverage for the idea you know research i find to spend a lot of time my time there it could be understanding where the competition is playing you know where does the competition live in the mind space of the consumer and can we take our brief and our objectives and differentiate that so we can own a unique space in the mind share of the consumer to really separate them from competitors and you know and there's probably you know a hundred more variables that are also involved in this process but i think those are the basic tenets that start to put me on a path to to solving a business problem alexander williams is the ceo of blue earth compost and we talked a lot of trash on the show literally His career path was all about taking chances on things, and that ultimately led him to become the owner and CEO of the composting company, Blue Earth. In fact, his parents showed him an article in the newspaper about the company, 
and he reached out and, well, the rest is history. He is super passionate about getting people to rethink about how they throw their food away and doing the right thing for our planet. One thing we've learned from all of our guests is that running a company takes an incredible amount of energy. There are early mornings, late nights, and the job never really ends. So I wanted to learn from Alex what he does to disconnect and break away from it all. I also enjoyed his advice about how we can all become a little more sustainable and help the planet to become a cleaner and greener place. Well, you bring up a good point, work-life balance, you know, like what do you, what do, you do to disconnect? Because that's important, right? You, you know, yeah. um, is there anything you do to disconnect sometimes? I mean, yeah, uh, I love to uh, garden not too much vegetables like plants flowers stuff like that so my yard is constantly got something to do in it it's very meditative in a way to get out Mm. there if it's also somewhat physically painful to like you know weed uh, uh, all the time um i like to hike quite a bit when my you know body allows me to do it um and my sort of most recent uh obsession if you will is uh cars i um i brought up earlier like you know thinking about sometimes what it would have been like if i had done a trade versus a liberal arts education so even though i did the latter i have very much tried to over the last couple of years uh learn stuff about the former so i work on my jeep a lot too much uh <laughs> you know i i like to get out there and turn a wrench and again it it's a process of doing something that's mentally uh, taxing to an extent. Yeah. In a good way to get my mind off of the other stuff that I have to deal with on a regular basis. If there's one way that people can start to become aware of sustainability, being green, composting, whatever we want to call all of this, what's, what is the first thing everybody can do that has a significant impact? Sure. This might be a little self-serving because of the, the business that I run and whatnot, but I truly believe that paying attention to what you throw out is one of the best ways to connect yourself to the impact that you're having on the environment. You know what I mean? If you sit there every day and you look at what you put in the trash the recycling and hopefully in the compost if you're doing that it's a great way to sort of connect a physical action with a mental thought process um and that lends itself in my opinion to sort of just a greater awareness again of the impact that you're having on the environment and on the world um there's again as we talked about earlier in terms of sort of the the future impacts of climate change or the impacts of things that affect our environment that not everybody has to deal with. Everybody's got to throw stuff away. Mm-hmm. So it's a great way again to to be aware of that. And hopefully you can take that sort of mental process or that again that thought process to other things that you do in your life, you know what I mean? That affect the environment. Um awareness at the end of the day. Just thinking about it. You know what I mean? That's the only that that's the pillar sort of i believe of environmentalism as a whole you know what i mean is people don't think about the impact that they're having and that leads them to not making 
decisions uh, in their daily life that will, you know, benefit the planet or benefit anything in their life. You know what I mean? So just pay attention to the trash you throw out next time. I have customers constantly who um, come to us and they say, oh, I lived in Seattle and we had a municipal program there and now I'm in Connecticut and I've been throwing my food away for a month before I found out about you and it's been killing me inside. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, that sort of feeling, if you develop that, I guarantee you it'll it'll benefit you and tangentially benefit the, the world as a whole. If you've ever been to New Haven, then you know Claire's Corner Copia. Founded in 1975, it's a New Haven institution that was organic before organic was a trend and a marketing buzzword. When I spoke with Claire, we went back and talked about her childhood and growing up in an Italian-American neighborhood in New Haven, the cooking lessons from her mother, and her undying passion for good food. Two of my favorite parts of our conversation were about her leadership style and what kind of advice she would give her younger self. What would you say that your leadership style is like? My mother, again, back to my mother, iron hand kid gloves. You know, people who know me well know that I'm a really good business leader, but people mm-hmm. who don't know me well think, like even a friend of mine, I, I have a new, a newer friend, and he said, I worry that people will take advantage of you. And I said, and he said, and he told my brother that same thing. He said to my brother, I'm worried that Claire will be taken advantage of because she's just so nice to everyone. And my brother said, don't worry about my sister. (laughs) You do do not need to worry about my sister, I assure you. Mm. And I just, you know what? I just try to be the best person I could be and try to surround myself with the best people. And if they're not, then they don't stay in the circle. But my, my leadership style, I'd have to say in work is, I try to put everything out there and I listen to people. I, I love everyone's. I, I want. I love consensus. I'm a very consensus consensus oriented person. I want people to agree on something, mm-hmm. and I and I do a very democratic. Mostly, I mean, there are a few times like yesterday. I finally said, Ashley, just do it. Just do what I said. I said we could stand here arguing over it all day, but this is what I think we should do now. And I've been here 46 years, and you've been here three years, so we need to do what I'm saying, and we could talk about it later. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of what it came down to. And then afterwards, you know, she said, you were right. It did work yeah. better. And I said, sometimes experience matters. You know, I said, and sometimes it doesn't, which is why sometimes I, you know, defer to you. You know, mm-hmm. so it, you have to, I think just listening to people and realizing that you kind of have to meet people where they're at. You know, everyone's had different experiences. And at Claire's, there is no, we're like a patchwork There is no one person who does every single thing, but together we are unstoppable. Mm. I have one person who's amazing. Like Erin is my brain. Erin is my, she's my Frank. And she says she married Claire. So I always tell her I'm very sorry. But um, (laughs) because I'm very, oh my God, let's do this. I'm very easily excited. I say, oh my gosh, let's get this. Oh my gosh, we should try this. And Erin is, where are we going to put it? Mm Erin's answer is, where are we going to put it? How much is it going to cost? So we have a balance. 
you know, and then, you know, Ashley will say, I think we should start breaks at this time today because of this. And I'll say, sure, why not? Or I'll say, you know what? I don't have a lot to do. I'll come up if you want. So we, you know, we go back and forth. So I think, but everybody has their, like Rosie, who's out on maternity leave now, nobody's more organized than Rosie. And she keeps us in line for that. You put any, she'll find out if you've put something back in the wrong place. And why is that so important? Because when you're busy and you're stressed already, having to look for something matters. Mm-hmm. And also, I think our team love that we get to help the community. I mean, we, we're probably known as much for our philanthropy, maybe even more than we are for our food at the restaurant. And that's, those are some pretty big shoes to fill. If you were to give your 18 or 21-year-old self some advice, knowing what you know today, what would it be? Don't worry. Things always work out. I mean, we, we always find a way to make things work. Mm. Because I always stressed over so much. You know, oh my God, like things that are unimportant. I mean, does it really matter if you don't have one item on your menu one day? And that's one thing the pandemic taught us. You really can live without, I don't know, the exact kind of organic greens you want and settle for the other organic greens that aren't quite as crispy, don't have quite as interesting a combination. <laughs> Right. You know, or you don't need to freak out because you can't get rhubarb immediately. And these kind of things, I know it sounds insane, but we stress over. It's like, oh my God, we didn't make this yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and and also it's okay to make mistakes. Like we, this year, I don't think anybody ate matzah and I have no idea why during Passover. Mm. But in the meantime, we have a bunch of matzah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to come down for some. Yeah. That's it. But I I don't, you know what? Just don't stress the little things because they work out. Jeff Brooks is the co-founder of Give Coffee along with his wife, Emily. After visiting some friends in Kentucky who owned a coffee company with a philanthropic purpose, Jeff and his wife were inspired that a great cup of coffee could be tied to a bigger cause and give back to the community. And so... Give Coffee was born. When I spoke with Jeff, we talked about what it's like to run a coffee company, traveling the world to source fair trade beans, and how his faith keeps him grounded and guides his decision-making process. One of my key takeaways from our conversation was about how his coffee company gives back to the community to make the world a better place. Tell me the, the, the give story. Not only do you guys have incredibly high standards and, and, and work with specific farmers and, and, and pay fair wages, but you give back. So kind of t- tell us the, the, the story about that. <laughs> yeah, it's like if you're a, um, a marketing person, yeah, you ever heard of like <laughs> the bowling balls thing? Like if you throw somebody one bowling ball, they'll probably catch it. If you throw them two... They might catch that second one. If you throw them three, they're just going to lose them all. Yes. <laughs> so I would think about that. <laughs> so we, we have three. <laughs> three things that we do. And so I think it kind of – people pick up – can usually handle about two of them. But um, our three big things are giving back. So we support um, the orphanage in Nicaragua. We support an anti-human trafficking um, 
uh, nonprofit in Thailand and a farmer development program in Zimbabwe um, and Hartford City Mission in Hartford. And so these are all projects that are close to us that my wife and I have actually worked with closely. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the, the giving side, which was what we were at from the beginning. Um, so that would be the start point. The next thing that kind of came along was quality. So we're, we, we sought this like um, unrelenting pursuit of quality, meaning like kind of what I was talking about, just like continue never being like this is good enough, but continuing to push um, in a scientific way, usually, you know, like um, coffee. And, and be better at it, to roast it better, to buy better green coffee, to taste it better, all of those things uh, became, started to build into the company. And that, that was also different. There's, there's not a ton of co coffee companies that, that um, give back. And um, like there's some philanthropic co coffee companies that are supporting stuff, but they usually um, uh, lack quality and that drive for quality. Um, there are, there are a few, you know, we're not the only, but, um, so we wanted to be a part of that mm -hmm. towards the higher quality. And then also, so then as we grew along, um, we, we were, and as the industry developed, we were able to, uh, start to develop more relationships with farmers in different countries, um, that we could, um, relationships where, you know, uh, an actual farm relationship program where we're committing to buy from these farmers each year and, um, and we visit them and uh, we kind of have a, a program where it's like, you know, we give them three years. So it's like, if you have down quality for two years in a row, like that third year we might not buy again, um, it, which is kind of neat because it allows for, the farmer to go through struggles that they might have, you know, family issues or um, weather. But typically we find that after two years of down quality, um, and then, I mean, we're not talking down, down, but we're able to use that coffee somewhere else um, uh, other than like, you know, single really high level stuff. Um, but after that, and this has actually only happened with one farmer, that um, he just couldn't quite ever get it together. And I think he actually moved out of coffee eventually anyways. So mm. it's just been neat to commit to them and to feel the commitment back um, and to actually relate with the farmers. And so that that's kind of the, and it's neat to see him come back around year after year and to kind of represent them. Um, so there's an amazing amount of people <laughs> who know um, Mauro Basante or Leonardo Rosero or, you know, some of these Dionisio Hernandez. So it's interesting because they keep coming back year after year, you know, yeah. cycle after crop cycle. And so um, it's neat to, to put them at the, the forefront like that and um, treat them well and um, all that stuff. So. And there we have it, the 2022 wrap-up show that features some quick highlights from our guests and their insights. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe found something they said insightful and inspirational. 
You can hear all of the full episodes on Spotify, Apple Music, and of course, on our website at mason23.com slash upfront. And keep a lookout, the 2023 season of shows is officially here and we'll be back in February with our first guest. Upfront is brought to you by Mason. Creatively obsessed and fixated on results, Mason leverages technology, entertainment, design, and culture to create bold, fearless ideas. It's time to make your brand more valuable. Challenge accepted. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us, send an email to hello at mason23.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you until the next time.